You've now entered the lap of luxury. Prepare your soul for a lavish journey into enlightenment. Okay, here we are. Again with Jasm and Amanda. What's crazy is, you know when the last podcast of this was? When? 2 December 2017. Wow. Just over a year. Yeah, (laughs) off by three days though, so it's crazy, isn't it? And you notice that we have a little bit of a different setup here. Yeah. A little upgraded. You've upgraded so. the facility a bit. <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah, so I think we're going to jump right in into a year that's very uh, sensitive to me, 1989. It was a great album by Taylor Swift, but there is, uh, there's another reason that we're here at, uh, what time is it, like 3.40 or so, mm-hmm. and not uh, doing work right now, unfortunately, I suppose, I guess, Right. is uh, the passing of... George H. Mm-hmm. Is it H? H-W. Yeah, H-W. Mm-hmm. That's George Walker. Okay. Uh, Bush. So, uh, and uh, President Trump gave us the, the day off to mourn him, so that's what we'll do. Um, yeah, but Jasmine, go ahead with your, uh, the dichotomy, basically, of the two, uh, or I guess the parallels between Taylor Swift and uh, <laughs> George sure. Bush being inaugurated. Sure. Well, <laughs> I, I don't think that Tay had geopolitics in mind when she <laughs> named her 2014 album. Uh, but it was because of a rebirth, because that's when she was born. Yes. So that was like her, like, starting fresh, so. Yes. Absolutely. <laughs> uh, and 89, arguably a rebirth for the democratic spirit in Europe and in the world. Um, I was just five. I I don't have any memory of the wall coming down. I do have other memories of current events from that time, but not long after that, I would say it was fairly, you know, fairly big topic of conversation, the fall of the Soviet bloc, which stretched into 1991, and you have this idea from people like Francis Fukuyama, who's a major political scientist, he wrote an essay called The End of History and the New Man, the idea... Which takes an unfortunate amount of criticism, I think. Uh-oh. I made the mistake of bringing that work up at a recent history conference I attended and uh, <laughs> and wound up having to backtrack a little bit because for, for what historians know of him, they sure don't appreciate that essay, which is why I think he's had to sort of rework it in his new book, Identity, um, and sort of make a defense for his argument. But I think... The way he reworked it has some relevance with what you're about to say, so go ahead and we'll see. <laughs> <laughs> well, just his central thesis being that if the the main action of history was the contest for power among people uh, and the contest of ideas of political organization, and in the 20th century we had seen the contest bet- between um, Leninist Marxism, between... Yeah. Uh, Nazism, Italian fascism, different forms of authoritarianism, and liberal democracies in Western Europe and the United States, then in 1989, with the fall of the Soviet Union, democracy had won, and uh, it was going to usher in a new era of democratic promise, and that's sort of what George H.W. Bush stood for, and uh, in a way, his son even more so with the freedom agenda that he pushed during his two terms in office, uh, promoting democratization. But just as Taylor's 1989 <laughs> had a lot of optimism, you know, uh, we 
it allowed us to think of our, our wildest dreams. <laughs> uh, what we've seen is that the contest for power is never never concluded. The people that lose in 1989 maybe come back to contest for power again. Mm-hmm. Uh, sometimes, literally, in Latin America, in uh, Nicaragua, you have the, the Sandinistas' descendants uh, now contesting for power again, communist movement. Um, so everybody loves the optimism of 1989, but we live in a much more reputation world. <laughs> so uh, when did when did the Berlin Wall come down? It was 89? November of 89. Yeah. Oh, so close to December 13th of 1989 when Taylor Swift was born. <laughs> yes. Yes, very close. Yes. I was hoping that would be like a Chuck Norris type thing where of... Uh, you know, Hitler uh, or <laughs> the Nazis surrendering. You know, right with when Chuck the Marsh wall was fell born. in her honor. <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> so, what was the catalyst, though, of the Berlin Wall coming down? I suppose as a little history lesson. Sure. So, throughout the 1980s, the Soviet Union experienced greater and greater economic distress. They were heavily involved in a long-running war in Afghanistan where they were fairly bogged down. They were being challenged intellectually, philosophically, by a new group of, of leaders in the West like Margaret Thatcher yeah. and Ronald Reagan and uh, Ryan Mulroney in Canada, so on and so forth. And on top of that, they had the arms race to contest with, yeah. and they can no longer afford to maintain the same policies of, of uh, relentless control in Eastern Europe that they had. So there's uh, movements like in, in Poland, you have Solidarity, which was the first uh, trade union that was independent of the Communist Party, um, looking for more and more of a role in decision-making. And, and basically, all these people power movements, the Soviet Politburo hands over power after some premiers die to Gorbachev, who realizes that the system is uh, going to collapse on itself if he doesn't open it up. And so... Uh, he announces the Sinatra policy that the countries in Eastern Europe, as they're experiencing challenges from within uh, to one-party control, that they can go their own way, that no longer is the Soviet Union going to uh, roll in with tanks if they go to a different direction, as happened in 1968 in the uh, Prague Spring, as happened in Hungary in the 1950s. So... With that, some of the Eastern European Soviet satellite states uh, start to have free elections, and then uh, gradually they, they loosen their controls on immigration, uh, and so East Germans get a, a path into West Germany by going through neighboring Soviet bloc countries that have opened their borders, and then that leads to pressure in November of 89 to open up the inner German border, gotcha, which yeah. finally happens, and it's... Uh, you know, hugely symbolic, but the Soviet Union itself doesn't end for another two years. Yeah, and the Soviet Union kind of collapses on it, or implodes, I suppose, from the economic pressure, right? Which I would hope would happen again, but we'll see, I guess. It's almost like cyclical, isn't it? Mm-hmm. Yeah, so. Have we seen that yet with uh, Russia nowadays? Is like, do you guys think uh, they're like facing a lot of, I don't know, they, they obviously wouldn't be open about right. that, right? No, well, they they have a lot of. I mean, they're they're a poor poor country, relatively speaking. Their yeah. economy is very dependent on 
resources like natural gas that they yeah. sell to Europe. Uh, they've had a brain drain of the educated class as Putin has imposed greater and greater control. Um, and what we've seen on their end is anytime his popularity dips a significant amount, uh, then he will do provocative things outside of Russia. And grip tighter, kind of, yeah. Right. Like the <clears throat> confrontation with Ukraine in 2014 where they took Crimea uh, is a prime example of where... And that's coming back, isn't it? Yes. Yeah, uh, that, with all the, the Ukraine stuff that is... I haven't seen what's happening recently. Is it just like in the Baltic Seas there? Oh, in the in the Black Sea area. Oh, uh, okay. Yeah, the Baltic would be to the north. But yeah, in the, the Black Sea region, you know, they have their... their Oh, Only yes, year-round warm water port there, and they uh, took control of Crimea four years ago, where they have a major naval base, and so there's this um, you know tight little strait uh, through which traffic goes uh, to both Russia and yeah. Ukraine, and essentially they're looking to keep Ukrainian shipping out of that area in order to uh, eliminate one route through which Ukraine can uh, trade and get yeah. supplies and stuff okay. like that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, they really seem to be just making moves and nobody's really... It's kind of... seems like an awkward time over there. I don't know. Mm-hmm. But how's the U.S. relations with Ukraine? Well, up and down. The... Not the most fantastic that things have ever been, but... Yeah, the... You know... Again, that goes back to 1989 again, and uh, the freedom agenda of, of you know George W. Bush and the ideas he got from from his father and from Reagan and people of that era. Yeah. In uh, 2005, they had a heavily contested election, or late 2004, very contested election in Ukraine between a uh, older pro-Russian candidate and a younger. Uh, more, more, more populist-oriented uh, guy who wanted to have Ukraine more aligned with the West versus mm-hmm. Russia, uh, and then there were basically there was a lot of fraud in that election, and so you had uh, you had a I think it was the Orange Revolution. I get my color revolutions mixed up, <laughs> but uh, at any rate, they had another election, and the uh, young guy gets in office, then he gets turned out, and the pro-Russia guy comes back in. 2014, he gets run out on a rail. Uh, but throughout all that time, the, the U.S. has, uh, without formally endorsing one or the other of the candidates, they've definitely expressed solidarity with uh, the you know pro-democracy side and the folks that uh, want to be more aligned with the West. So in 20. 2013, 2014, when you had the protests in uh, Maidan Square uh, to be more aligned with the West, uh, I think it was our, our Assistant Secretary of State for Eastern European Affairs uh, actually went around and gave out coffee and donuts to the, <laughs> to the protesters. So, um, you know, that sent a message to the people on the pro-Russia side uh, that maybe we were, we were picking sides. Mm-hmm. So... Um, you know, we we have been we've been very uh, explicit that Russia needs to stop invading Eastern right. Ukraine. Yeah. Uh, but beyond <laughs> that, we have not taken um, huge concrete steps. I would say. So I guess yeah, Ukraine is kind of has their own power struggles, right? 
internally with who they're siding with, I suppose. Okay. Which um, you see with a lot of um, countries throughout that region yeah, right now. because they have influence on both sides, mm-hmm. essentially, yeah. And it, in this moment of kind of young democracies deciding what direction they're going to take since those hopeful days of the fall of the Soviet Union, yeah, that's sort of um, a question to be further explored, the direction that, that they're going to go. Yeah, and with the fall of the Soviet Union, actually I was listening to a, a book, I forget what it was called, about like basically the rise of Putin. Mm-hmm. And obviously that, you know, that's, that was like the vacuum that allowed him to like kind of sneak in. And I think he was just like an intel officer or something like mm-hmm. that equivalent. Mm-hmm. And he just, you know, he was like a no name, but he was still like, um, the peop- the powers that be were like, liked his mentality, I suppose. Mm-hmm. And so he, you know, kind of rose to power and obviously he's in one way or another essentially holding on to power. Mm-hmm. <laughs> What was he like? He was like the prime minister or something instead of the president or something. Oh, they're oh for for four years because they swapped with Medvedev. Yeah, they had before they changed their. But he was still the guy in charge, obviously, right? Yeah, yeah. They had a a massive two consecutive terms, so he Mm -hmm. traded out and had uh, had his puppet be the president while he basically ran things as prime minister. Now he's back as president again. Yeah, that's so crazy. But um, so H W, what was the big takeaways? I guess from his four years. Or like I guess the major events, obviously the, the mm-hmm. fall. And so it, it did it kind of show. It was kind of like a positive spring, I suppose. Mm-hmm. Yeah, turn of events, I suppose. Absolutely. Well, and I, as you've been talking about, nineteen eighty nine and Taylor's album and, and the <laughs> hope and the and the world situation. Um, I just feel like we saw so much of that reflected in um, the remembrances this morning and the funeral. Yeah. Uh, and and kind of the way that people remembered the accomplishments of, of H.W. and um, who told that joke about how he uh, listed off all of his accomplishments and said, you know, whatever, like I haven't even had my coffee yet or something oh, yes. about he had done all these <laughs> things that morning, like, you know, ended communism and, and you know, taken down radicals in South America and whatever, he had his whole list and, uh, and hadn't even had his coffee yet or something. Um, and I just think that that relates so well to the whole concept of the optimistic moment in world history before um, things started looking kind of scary again. That's it. It, seemed, it feels like that was the last time that the United States, as a quote unquote superpower, yeah. uh, could get unanimity from the other leading powers. That we were, like, clear in charge, kind objectives. of. Yeah, yeah. like, yeah. putting together that 29-country uh, coalition in the yeah. first Gulf War. Right. Um, you know, with even the Soviets supporting it, that kind of thing. It wasn't all that long after that, even though we were the only economic military superpower, other major powers started trying to form coalitions to counterbalance us. Yeah. Um, so there was a lot more consensus among among world leaders at that time. Which is it was kind more of, of a tranquil time, I suppose. Yeah. Yeah, in a sense. And I mean, is that because Russia was kind of, or the Soviet Union, I guess, at the time, was kind of down, right? So they were kind of, they obviously didn't have much leeway, you know? A little I bit. Suppose. Yeah, a little bit. I mean, I, I think Gorbachev, you know, Gorbachev didn't want to end the Soviet system. He wanted to save the Soviet system. But he perceived that in order to make the reforms they needed to do internally to save the Soviet system, then they had to be less confrontational externally. More passive. And then, you know, he saw Bush as a a partner that 
they could mm -hmm. maybe manage world affairs together in a less confrontational way, and uh, he could do what he needed to do internally, but he could not reform the Soviet system fast enough to prevent it from collapsing. And, you know, by opening things up, he unleashed all these democratic impulses and unleashed this right. hunger on the part of people in the Soviet Union for even greater freedom that ultimately, you know, turned him out of office. Uh, yeah. It led, led to people wanting Yeltsin in charge. Yeah. People love freedom. And you can't, <laughs> you can't give them a taste of it and then hope to put them back in the box, I don't think. Yeah, that's true. I mean, yeah, like you said, like, if you... They have to... You have to, like, basically seal it off at, like, commune, you know, and mm -hmm. all those types of ideas. And if you yeah, give them a taste of something right. better, then they're going to be like, wait a minute, what's going on here? Yeah. <laughs> we, we could do something else. Um, mm -hmm. Okay, and then, so, basically, he transitions, and then uh, Clinton takes over, right? Right. And mm -hmm. then he sees a lot of uh, economic prosperity properly because of the, f of the preceding right. term, mm -hmm. right? Right. I mean, <laughs> so, during the latter part of Bush's term... There was an economic recession. Uh, you know, we had experienced something like eight years of continuous growth since the recession at the beginning of the Reagan years had ended, and uh, that obviously put a lot of downward pressure on Bush's poll numbers. Uh, at the same time, we have growing federal deficits and you know greater national debt. So he uh, meets with Congress and they do this bipartisan deal to. Uh, you know, ultimately cut spending and, and increase taxes, get additional tax revenue. And it, it really sets the stage later on for Clinton working with Newt Gingrich in Congress to be able to balance the budget. Uh, but Bush breaks his no-new taxes pledge, which also hurts him in and I think 1992. That, in a way, because they reflected on that at the funeral this morning uh, about that bill and about George Bush deciding that he needed to make this compromise he needed to break that promise because it was the right thing to do um, to obtain the revenue for this this bill that was a bipartisan effort that was you know good for the country, uh, and so he and he really acknowledged the sacrifice um, the way they were describing it this morning that he was making and how that was going to be a big hit to him to go ahead and, and proceed um, to support that that raising taxes and it maybe cost him the election. I mean, it had a huge impact, I think, on the future of his own political career. And I think, in a way, that can be instructive to us to say, well, um, you know, here is a, a leader who was willing to sacrifice his own yeah. uh, future for what he thought was for the good of the country, but it also was instructive to um, politicians of subsequent generations who have said, oh, I'm not going to do that, right? I'm yeah. not going to. Yeah, that's true. Um, because if you think about the Republican primary debates in 2016, when they're asked, would you, what was that question? Would you, would you raise taxes? Would you raise taxes uh, if the Democrats promised um, $10 of spending, spending cuts. cuts for every $1 of tax increases, would you take that deal? And everyone on the stage said no, they wouldn't take that deal. They were going to get a 10 to 1 <laughs> agreement. I mean, you know, all <clears throat> theoretical, but they were, if they were theoretically offered a 10 to 1 in their favor deal, they wouldn't have taken it. Because of the emotional scarring kind right. of thing. Right, I think so. And, right. and because of the partisan world that that we live in, you know, where we don't really reach across the aisle the way that <sighs> had yeah. been done historically. Yeah, that's... I don't know, is that just one of those things where it's like, back in the... I mean, like, I don't know, 60s or 70s, where people were very partisan and we're just seeing that again? Or is that 
something new? Because I feel like it's new. I think it's cyclical. It's a tough question, in, yeah. In some ways, mm-hmm. I, I think there are long-term social and, and demographic changes that make it more, uh, you know, make things more partisan today. Uh, at the time that Bush was vice president and president, you had a lot of the key leaders in Congress uh, and in American politics were World War II veterans. And yeah, mm-hmm. I like to think that yeah. having, you know, served in wartime, that uh, that makes you more inclined to see commonality with your yeah. your opponent across the aisle yeah. that also served. Like uh, one of my favorite stories is That's true. Bob Dole, uh, who ran for president as the Republican nominee, after Bush, who was the last World War II veteran to be nominated, uh, was a Republican, but his best friend in the U.S. Senate was uh, Dan Inouye from Hawaii, who was a Democratic senator that, mm-hmm. uh, like Dole, had been an infantry officer in Italy in World War II and was wounded and got the Medal of Honor, uh, and they recovered in the same hospital together. Yeah, it's crazy. Uh, were best, friend, best friends throughout their career. But at the same time, I, I mean, I teach my students about the concept, the, this historical idea of the partisan press, and I ask them, uh, one of their quiz questions is um, to note the era of American history where the partisan press um, was really dominant, and a lot of them will check, check the multiple choice answer that says today, and that's not the correct answer. It's, it's, <laughs> the you know, 19th century. It's, yeah, 19th century, mid-19th century, and uh, so... Quite some time ago, um, when you know we still had this huge partisan divide, and and news was heavily um, biased. Well, all media serving a, a partisan purpose really back then. So the election yeah, of eighteen hundred was really heated. Oh my! When I you know they talk about how the campaign rhetoric is <clears throat> is terrible these days, but when I read to them campaign pamphlets and advertisements from eighteen hundred, you know calling opponents son of a whore talking about <laughs> children are going to have be writhing on pikes decapitated and raped in the streets oh, and i mean it's you don't hear that today right. so that you know i i do think it all kind of comes around over time yeah i guess that part's better and obviously i don't know maybe we're biased with the military service mm-hmm. is always better I, I i mean i would think so if you're going to serve or if you're going to serve as, you know, the political leaders, and then obviously the military is a huge part of government, yeah. right? I would just hope it would make, make you more big picture. Yeah, exactly. Mm-hmm. And more humble, I guess, suppose as well, mm-hmm. I think. Um, I think it does, and, and it, it engenders a, a sort of sense of camaraderie. Um, so teaching at our last base, I taught uh, classes at the university campus and then also classes, of course, on the Air Force Base, which were predominantly military students, younger airmen, uh, and I would give them the exact same lecture and the exact same discussion questions. And I did really notice that among my military students, um, the dialogue tends to be um, a little bit more respectful and a little bit more diverse, but mostly just um, showing signs that they've been exposed to more ideas and you yeah. know, and been in more diverse environments. And so, yeah, I think certainly military service helps with, with that. Yeah, I think also the, I mean, the patriotism, but then also moving everywhere makes you, right. like, meet new people and mm-hmm. different ideas, I suppose, right? So, um, but yeah, I, I don't think you, I mean, you don't really see that too much anymore, right? I mean, I don't know. Mm-hmm. I don't know how many people in Congress or ever have military experience, I mean. More than there used to be. Uh, I you mean, think so? Oh, you yeah, mean, like, right, like a few years ago or something like that? Right. Kind of a move yeah. away from it. Yeah. Right, oh, that's yeah, true. after they got rid of the the draft in 1975, the numbers start to decline over time. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And I 
I forget when we reached the, the low, but uh, from what I understand, now as veterans of the Global War on Terror have started to get elected, uh, we're starting to see the percentage of veterans in Congress go back up again. Yeah. And, you know, several elected this last cycle, which is yeah. good to see. Yeah. yeah, that is good. So, I mean, do you think, like, a common... I think I would want to get into politics, but do you think I got... It, it's kind of going to be hard to go into politics with all this. <laughs> all these recordings. Right, you're going to be careful what you put out there. It won't be that hard for them to dig up stuff if I have a podcast about it. <laughs> um, I don't know. Do you think, like, a common person can become get very far I feel like you have to have like a lot of money and mm-hmm. I mean not necessarily power but maybe like influence or networking right you know what I mean I don't know yeah that's like it's like it's one of those things that just gets deterred in my mind where it's just like right. it doesn't look like I mean I don't think I can go very far but I would want you know I, right. know, I would want to help people essentially, yeah but so I feel like to a degree it is harder because well one campaigns cost more money yeah two Campaigns for Congress, I'll focus on Congress because why not, uh, are a lot more influenced by national political parties and the national party committees in Congress, like the NRCC, National Republican Congressional Committee, and the Democratic equivalent. Because the stakes are so high, they are a lot more involved in candidate recruitment than they used to be. So it used to be that things were... Well, for a brief period, things were wide open and, and people could just decide organically to run for office and, you know, best guy in the primary would win. Well, now, in especially in very competitive races, the national party committees are going to go out and recruit candidates to run. And if you beat their chosen candidate, yeah, they'll throw their weight behind you, but you're going to have to go up against the weight of the resources that the national party committees can put behind their chosen candidate. That's um, a lot of primary and work, the yeah. People they introduce them to and the resources they have. Mm-hmm. Now, you know, it wasn't all that long ago uh, that local party leaders picked candidates in smoke filled rooms. So to <laughs> a degree, things are more open than they have been, but it's it, it's still not ideal. I, I would say to people that are thinking about it, the best way to start is start with smaller local offices yeah. and start by you know, volunteering to support campaigns of people that you you like, and then through that process, you will network and you will meet people mm-hmm. uh, that can be in a position to help you. But uh, and start as young as possible, I would think. I mean, being involved in um, state and local politics as an undergraduate student, I noticed that there were a good chunk of people, and I was in a smaller state that were working on their future political career as freshmen in college, you know, they're networking locally, they're volunteering with the state party, they're um, securing field rep positions in their summers, you know, they, they have a plan, and they are pursuing those connections as early as possible. I mean, that's what I noticed, at least. Sure, that's not true for everyone, but... Yeah, I don't know if you know uh, Cosmo. Oh, yes. Yeah, he, uh... I remember one time, I was in his FTU class, and one time we were, like, outside the gate over here, and I think he was, like, dancing in his car, and I was, and we were stopped at the light, and I was going to take a video of him on my phone, he's like, mm-hmm. no, don't do it, because I'm going to run for political office. <laughs> <laughs> I'm like, jeez. Wow. Yeah. And didn't he yeah, just get, like, some Air Force uh, volunteer of the yeah, year? Yeah, he got, like, 2018 Airman of the Year or something oh, like that. Oh, nice. Yeah. <laughs> See, he's working on it. I know. He has exactly. a plan. Yeah. <laughs> and, and he's, you know, from what I remember, he's heavily involved in... Catholic charities and yeah. stuff like that. Like he he raises a lot of money to 
help various good causes. So yeah. he's, you know, he's he's got experience with the right skill sets. We might see him on a ballot before long. <laughs> yeah, I know. I mean, I, especially with the internet age, that's it's really tough to keep things private. Not that yes. I don't know. It's like I think we care about some stuff more than we should probably. Mm-hmm. But then yes. again, I think it might help the us. Uh, the more tech savvy, I think, generation as we're coming up, like with networking and probably getting our name out there, will probably help us more, you know, as opposed to having to put like yard signs on every, right. <laughs> you know, right. Well, and I think as soon as this new generation, these high school students, these middle school students, as soon as they start voting um, in significant numbers in the coming years, we're going to see a, a really, I I expect a different sort of emphasis. They have lived their entire lives. Uh, in an open digital forum, you know, their parents are constantly Instagramming their potty training escapades and whatever. So I, I don't I don't know that they're going to be as scandalized by scandalous internet behavior the way that, you know, voters are right now. Um, so that might, that might change the, like, the situation uh, a little bit. Oh, digging so. up, digging up off-color jokes people have made years ago. Uh, yeah. Right. Like uh, the director of Guardians of the Galaxy. You know, not politics, but similar type of thing. People yeah. dug up things this guy said six years ago and Or even, fired. like, drunk pictures or, you know, pictures of sex inappropriate tape. behavior, sex tapes, whatever. <laughs> yeah, I just, I don't know that that's going to matter when your voters are predominantly these, you know, these people who have lived their entire lives that way. I don't know. Yeah, that's, mm, that is a good point. Yeah. you have a different perspective. And I think the biggest thing, too, with voters is, like, not everybody gets... You have, you should know... You shouldn't vote if you don't know mm-hmm. what you're voting. You know, you shouldn't just go with, I like that name or something right. like that. You <laughs> know, so. yeah. And talking about, like, I don't know, how much influence has you have you seen that Facebook actually had on the election, I suppose, the mm. most recent one? Pretty oh big portion. The, the 18 election or the 16 yeah. election? Uh, the 16. 16 election. To be determined. Yeah, <laughs> right. I, know. I'm sure I mean, there's, there's not like a number. Well, there's not like a number it. on it, but it's I mean, say, but yeah. it is, I mean, it is true though. Like if somebody who doesn't really know uh, the political environment, I suppose, and they just see like one ad, right? You know, that might lead them to remember that when right. they go to vote. You know what I mean? Or so it's even, hard to like put yeah. a number on it, but or not even ads, but <clears throat> memes. Right. <laughs> so many memes. <laughs> that's true. That's true. And micro-targeting, you know, being able to deliver that meme to that person uh, on their feed, that, I don't know, we don't know, but yeah, it's got to be enormously <laughs> influential, I would think. Yeah. We're just, we got to figure it out. And I think, like, the proliferation of fake news, as it's described, mm-hmm. well, you know, it, it, like, got to a certain point, and I guess we're seeing that now, but now people are starting to crack down. I think Facebook is, I, I've noticed they've, they're taking, like, a huge hit on, you know, or really their stock, which mm-hmm. is, you know, their their view in the uh, economy, I suppose. But I know they're taking a lot of steps. I don't really know how you do that, but if there's, like, so many things posted every second, like, how you really, right. how you really crack down it. on that, you know? And how do you balance... How do you balance freedom of speech, freedom of expression yeah. right. with trying to regulate something that's enormously influential and can yeah. have massive bad effects if it's used for ill? And how do you poll and research in such a way that you can even identify what kind of an impact those things have in the first place. I mean, that's right. because people a lot of times won't even kind of, like you said, remember experiencing this meme running through their feed, but they'll sort of internalize the message or yeah. um, it'll reinforce the echo chamber that they live in. And, and right. then 
they'll take that to the polls, but they won't really remember that, you know, that's where they got that idea. Right. It's not even necessarily persuading them, per se, on any particular fact, because, you know, I see a lot of those fake news things that my, my mom has shared, and it's stuff that she already, <laughs> stuff that she she already, already believed, believes, right? right? Stuff she already believes. So yeah. I think the real effect is not changing minds so much as reinforcing the the partisan echo chambers, the bubbles that people live in, and also maybe motivating people to vote if they were not otherwise inclined. And I also think that negative so-called news seems to be a much bigger motivator than positive agenda. Yeah. You know, you don't see dank memes about uh, <laughs> Trump or about Hillary's uh, tax plan or yeah, their true. agenda for higher education. You see memes about how the other candidate is, is terrible in, yeah. you know, so many ways. Yeah, that's very interesting. Yeah, that's a good point. I, and I really hate it when, uh, and that's what I think it drives, is like the quest for power is like makes people want to, you know, be, you know, get dirt on the other person. Right. You know what I mean? Delegitimize. Yeah, which I mean really doesn't, I mean, if it's something um, substantial, I suppose, or something that matters, maybe that's important. Mm-hmm. But if it's something like they did something, it's kind of like, okay. Mm-hmm. Well, <laughs> you right. know? And again, like we were saying, that could influence the election or whatever how many votes but and it influences yeah. the kind of people that will choose to get involved in politics right uh, but I, I with that in mind it does kind of make me wonder if we're starting to just now see the beginnings of a shift um, where people with you know a little bit more of a past or a skeleton or two are more willing to get involved in politics even if you just think about the, the Texas Senate race um, this past year you know Beto O'Rourke is out there talking about his infraction, right? Like his legal violation. His DUI. Uh, his DUI. And, and he's acknowledging it and he's trying to kind of own it so that he can get out ahead of it. Um, if we think about even further back to 2016 where they, um, before the election really gets really going, they put out a lot of the Monica Lewinsky conversation so that we can just sort of have it, people can get bored with it, and then it doesn't become a huge focus in the election, which I, you know, I, I think with O'Rourke's DUI, that's kind of what he was doing too. He was saying, "Hey, let's just deal with this. Let me deal with it, and we can all move on. Everybody and can just get like bored a minute, of it. Kind of yeah, it just own enough. it and yeah. say, I've learned from that. That's behind me. Um, so, and the fact that he performed so well in Texas, I mean, you know, regardless of <laughs> how much that was because of the way people feel about Ted Cruz, I think just shows <laughs> that people are willing to to look past." Some of those indiscretions that once upon a time might have been unforgivable for a politician. So, I don't know. We'll see. Yeah, I mean, it's really hard to... I mean, we see this in the military. It's like, it's really hard to... The specific example of, like, DUI, mm-hmm. like... It's kind of hard to... Overcome that. Yeah, but also, like, keep that on someone for so mm-hmm. long. You know what right, I mean? Right, yeah. Well, that's... They get painted with it forever, but... Right, I mean, it's... Does it need to be career-ending? I right, mean, I don't... It's, that's a difficult... That's a difficult question. Especially because everybody knows everybody's driven drunk at some point. You know, and like, <laughs> they just didn't get caught, you know yeah. what I mean? Or something like that, Certainly you know? in the Air Force. Yeah, like well, yeah. Jeez. Um, yeah, so, going back, I think you made a reference to Taylor Swift. I forgot what it was, but it, uh, it almost brought it full circle there. But, going back, so, okay, so HW kind of brought some positives, right? Bill Clinton kind of extended that. Right. And then, mm-hmm. how do we continue here? So, George Bush, he, I mean, I don't know, I guess the biggest thing was probably September 11th, global war on terror. Right. And then, did that kind of bring, 
I don't know, more economic stress, I suppose, with more military spending in a war. And that, I mean, I guess that right. fuels it a little bit. But right. Yeah, I mean, to the, to, I think to the extent that it does that, we're not going to see the effects for some time yet uh, because we chose to fight the global war on terror through deficit financing. We never raised taxes to pay for it. Uh, you know, they would pass emergency appropriations bills, you know, for for contingency operations to yeah. where they didn't have to squeeze stuff into the main Pentagon budget. So I think we'll see the long-term effect on that as we have a, a higher debt-to-GDP ratio than conceivably we could have slower overall economic growth in the future. But uh, didn't have an immediate economic effect during Bush's term, but, you know, certainly, you know, the end of the first dot-com boom combined with the collapse of the airline industry after September 11th, uh, all of that did create a, you know, little economic recession during the first half of his term, which, you know, the economy recovered as it always does, cyclical, and he was able to recover politically to where by the end of his term he gets reelected uh, with over 50% of the vote, right, and he's the first candidate since his father in 1988 to get over 50% of the vote. Mm-hmm. He was going against... John Kerry. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. But I think we also have gotten so used to living that way now. I mean, right? Because we've done all this like deficit spending. We've continued this yeah. manner of financing government initiatives. And now we have this generation that, you know, can't fathom anything else. Like when I teach about um, the days of federal government surpluses and how that was embarrassing yeah, to that's... national leaders, <laughs> nobody can even imagine what that... First of all, they think, why would that ever be embarrassing? You know, why are they trying to spend their way out of a surplus? Why not, like, save it up for those of us who are going to need it later, you know? But, um, yeah, that's just not something that we could ever fathom, the federal government having too much money um, and not being able to spend it. I mean, I think, and that's, is that usually like a direct correlation to how much military force we're projecting, I suppose? Like, right now it doesn't look like it's going to change anytime soon, right? Because right. we're in so many different AORs right. that, like, I don't think we can pull back. If anything, right. Right. the chiefs of staffs are saying we need more, more like, money. we need right. twice as much, you know? Yeah. I don't know. I, th- that may be a chicken or the egg kind of question because when you think back to the days of federal government surplus, um, the way that they dealt with the uncomfortable feeling of the federal government taking in too much money was partly by taking in a little bit less, but also in a big way was military spending. Like, um, if you think about the Great White Fleet and the naval expansion and all of the money that we started spending on modernizing and improving our military because we had money laying around, um, it was sort of a way to dispose of the federal surplus. Yeah. Right? If I'm remembering it all correctly. Yeah. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So, I don't know if we got used to spending more heavily on the military then? Probably the Reagan spending is more relevant to right. that conversation. But but I, I do think what it shows, though, is, is voters are not very responsive to huge sums of money that are getting put on the credit card going to military spending, but they are responsive to casualties. And so you had mm-hmm. the Iraq war was very controversial from 2004 to 2008, 2009, mm-hmm. uh, when numbers of casualties were relatively high. Now, since then, you know, over 10 years after the Iraq surge, we're still heavily involved in the region, both there and in Afghanistan, uh, pouring a lot of money into it and, you know, not seeing significant results from it in Afghanistan, at least. 
and voters don't care nearly as much about it because right. it's um, it's just future credit card bills. It's not people dying. So, you know, as a part-time military member, I uh, <laughs> I do appreciate that they care about me more than money. But you know, it does make you wonder how effective our democratic institutions are at disciplining our elected officials to use military force responsibly if they can, you know, do it at high cost to the treasury and have a low level of civic engagement argument debate over the merits of it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and it's kind of a tough little I don't know, it's like we're we're stretched pretty thin. I mean, between our manning mm-hmm. and that and then we're trying mm-hmm. to get more money to get more. So, right. So it's like we're like just in this yeah. really extreme area of like mm-hmm. trying yeah. our hardest and you know it's yeah. like we're not even like catching up, you know. Right. right. That's the toughest yeah. part, you know. Mm-hmm. Until that like I was kind of talking about in the beginning is like until hopefully our near peers or somebody finally if they're you know kind of putting on a facade, mm-hmm. hopefully implode on themselves again. Right. <laughs> you know, and then mm-hmm. we can back off. Because I think in, what, like 94 or something around mm-hmm. then, after, or maybe a couple of years after the um, Soviet, you know, everything kind of settled down, like we were talking about, like the train cool time there, mm-hmm. uh, the military kind of pulled back all their manning, right? I think I remember some oh, yeah. was talking about that. Yeah, yeah, numbers of people went way down, a lot of base closures. Yeah. And, right. and I would say that this is an area where, you know, really you have to make a a favorable comparison of George H.W. Bush's performance relative to anybody that's come after because he was the last president to decisively win a war. He was the last president to shape our military in a way, with a long-term vision that was based on the the threats and the missions and the roles of the time uh, in a way that was sustainable. And he was the one that uh, started the cuts for the post Cold War world, um, you know, numbers for the, the, like the B-2 went down, for instance, and a lot of the bases closed, but, uh, you know, not nearly as big as the the cuts that have happened, uh, you know, happened later in the Clinton years, and then, you know, since then, we've seen all of this spending for missions that, you know, at the end of the day, do they make us safer, and are we spending in areas that that build up the military in order to to defend against a, a competitor, like a true competitor, versus these long-term counterinsurgency operations. Like, for yeah. instance, mm-hmm. uh, the Air Force has, you know, one reason fighter pilot manning is so screwed up is some people got diverted to RPAs in the yeah. late 2000s to feed this counterinsurgency fight, and, you know, now we're at a, a deficit of pilots to win the hypothetical big war, which is kind of what the Air Force is supposed to be built to yeah, do. Yeah, now we're feeling like the second order effects of that, yeah. Mm-hmm. And I mean, like Secretary Mattis said, like, we're going away from counterinsurgency and concentrating more on New York Right. Yeah, mm-hmm. so mm-hmm. that's interesting. Um, John Kerry made me think, when we mentioned him, of like, if you run for president and lose, mm-hmm. it almost feels kind of like a end of your career, but it also helps you, right? Because at least people know your name. <laughs> but like, where do you where do you, where go, do you go? Yeah, yeah. Well, speaking, uh, you stay- speaking engagements, I think, right? Then you go to university <laughs> campuses and charge a hundred grand to give yeah. a little lecture. I guess you're still a player, kind of in your political system or yeah. uh, party. Mm-hmm. Right. But 
Kerry might run again. Yeah. We're just talking, yeah. He'll he run was in 2020. talking about Come him back. back. Yeah. Because, I mean, who's looking good, I guess, jumping ahead? Who's looking good in the Democratic, or I guess, either parties, I guess. I Is that a, I don't know that that's a conversation that anybody who's ready to have, I guess, right? <laughs> I mean, it's just... <laughs> I saw Michelle might run. I don't know, but... You know, I, I've heard that there are a lot of people that want her to run. Um, she just she just pumped out a book recently. Yeah, she did. Right, yeah, yeah she she's did. still on her book tour. Yeah. I've been seeing a lot of fashion reporting on her shoes. Yeah. <laughs> I, you know, we, we've had, there, there's a long tradition in American politics of spouses of former senators, former governors becoming senators and governors, mm-hmm. and we haven't quite had that with the presidency yet. Yeah. Um, you know, popular vote in 2016. But yeah, Hillary Clinton, Hillary Clinton, in the intervening time, had gotten elected to the Senate, served a term and a, and a half in the Senate, mm-hmm. uh, had run for president once unsuccessfully, had spent four years as Secretary of State right, yeah. when she ran. Whereas uh, Michelle Obama doesn't have a comparable record. That's true. Yeah, mm-hmm. that's true. And that's that's my main issue. Is I, I think a lot of the a lot of the candidates, potential candidates on the Democratic side, that are getting a lot of grassroots interest on the internet, yeah. have thinner resumes, right. and I, I'm i looking for more of a George H.W. Bush type, someone <laughs> with a lot of experience. You know, George Bush was a congressman for four years. He was our ambassador to the United Nations, our ambassador to China, mm-hmm. director of the CIA, vice president for eight years. Uh, I'm looking for... That's a lot of experience. Yeah. <laughs> director of the CIA. I mm-hmm. forgot about that one. Mm-hmm. That's That's got to yeah. be huge. Yeah. yeah. And, and one thing that I've talked to people in the Air Force about is, uh, the best predictor of how somebody does as a leader is how they've done as a leader in the past. And the Air Force, we act like that's not true. And we try to you know, constantly shuffle in new leadership, at least on active duty, and get as many people a little bit of experience as we can. Yeah, right, yeah. Uh, you know, whereas, at least on the ops side, whereas in the maintenance side, it's not uncommon for people to be squadron commanders two or three times, be group commanders twice. Oh, really? So... I imagine those people are both really tired, but also really good at coming <laughs> by the time they're done. Right. And so what I'm looking for in a candidate is somebody that has been a uh, has been elected statewide to something in their state, either yeah. to the Senate or to governor, um, more than once, ideally in a purple state, a, a divided state that shows they can appeal to members of their own party as well as independents and members of the other party. And I'm looking for somebody that has extensive executive experience either as governor of a large state or mayor of a big city because frankly to me if you're the mayor of New York City that's probably better experience than being governor of, of a small state like yeah. North Dakota or South right. Dakota yeah. um, so basically the, the more people that you can show me that you've persuaded to follow <laughs> you before uh, from as big of a swath of the political spectrum and the mo- more experience you have uh, that to me makes you more serious yeah but I don't know that our system, our especially our parties, really reward that resume. No, um, they don't. at all. Yeah. So I don't know you're gonna get. I don't know that you're gonna get what you want. But the more experience you have, the more your opponents can. Right. That's a liability. Experience is a attack. liability in politics these and days. I, I kind of hate that we like you know the candidates fight about. Oh, this guy said this one time. I mean, I understand that, but at the same time, it's like if you change your mind about you know, like right. if you, you grow be or something, you know what I mean. Mm-hmm. Especially if it's like years apart, you know. Mm-hmm. But um, and obviously, there's a lot of transparency, uh, transparency issues as well there. But mm-hmm. yeah, um, mm-hmm. shoot, I was gonna say something. 
So I don't think he answered your question because... Oh, yeah, who's looking good? Well, because I don't think anybody uh, meets your requirements, so... Well, I, I think that there's a few. I mean, I'd have to look at the resumes. I mean, unfortunately, so a lot of the people are very experienced on the Democratic side and have done some of those things that I was talking about, winning statewide elections. A lot of that experience has been more so on the legislative side than on the executive side, like... John Kerry spent many years in the Senate, was lieutenant governor of Massachusetts for two years, um, was not ever a governor or a mayor. Uh, you've got uh, Joe Biden was vice president and was a senator. I don't think was has ever been a governor or a mayor. Um, so I'm going to have to scrub the resumes a little <laughs> bit, you know, review their application packages and see what they bring to the table. Uh, but then what I've been telling people, is I think there's a real dark horse candidate out there who has extensive <laughs> extensive executive experience as leader of a very successful business enterprise uh, in the nation's seventh largest city, San Antonio. He's also somebody with military experience, having graduated from the Air Force Academy and served as an Air Force officer for a time, uh, expert in international affairs with a degree in Russian and Eastern European studies, speaks to... Eastern European languages, uh, and and uh, has extensive support in the black community, which is going to be important for any potential Democratic nominee. And of course, I'm talking about Pop, uh, Coach Greg Popovich of the San Antonio Spurs, <laughs> because why not? I forgot, I forgot he went to the academy. That's pretty funny. Um, okay, yeah, I know it is looking a little rough for us. It isn't it kind of I don't know. Isn't it kind of weird to like? Even if Joe Biden ran or somebody like that, or even Michelle Obama or Hillary again, it's like, it's kind of like, all right, we're just throwing people back in. Right. <laughs> yeah. Right. right. It, it is tough to, like, get, I guess, fresh new talent, but yeah. Okay. And then going back to the uh, presidential um, discussion. So George Bush edited his second term. I guess the biggest thing was probably he kind of walked out at a recession. I mean, not, right. oh, not, yeah. his, not yeah, his fault. With the uh, housing market collapse. Right. Yeah. The bubble, yeah. Um, you know, and I think the the administration managed that about as well as they, they could have. Yeah. You know, it was very controversial at the time, the auto bailouts, the right. troubled asset relief program, uh, stuff yeah, like that. Yeah. Uh, and they they kept those banks from closing, which would have been really bad for business yeah, in the U.S. Yeah, pretty catastrophic, would for have, sure. <laughs> you know, without the liquidity to support business loans, mm-hmm. uh, then you don't have new businesses getting started and you, you know, don't have, you know, your existing firms aren't able to bring products to market and so on and so forth. So can I just tell uh, briefly, one of my favorite examples of that, the way that uh, it was handled and the way that they sort of learned some historical lessons from previous um, crises. Uh, I was teaching a seminar on the Great Depression and the New Deal and I was showing photographs of runs on banks um, at the time and I... Uh, there's this perfect news photograph of uh, during the financial crisis um, in our own lifetime where you have people showing up to um, withdraw their funds from a bank uh, and the bank has set up this like waiting area with these beautiful garden folding chairs uh, and they're under a tent and they're dealing with each person. They've got them outside in this um, line of folding chairs 
as they are, you know, getting ready to be seen and have their concerns met by, by the bank. Um, and you contrast that with the photographs from the 1930s of people just like, you know, breaking open bank windows and trying to get in, trying to get their money out. Um, it, it was maybe as orderly as it could have been, um, <laughs> the way that we dealt with this this financial crisis. I don't know, but I, yeah, I, I just is... think that kind of captures the spirit of it a little bit. Yeah, it's pretty interesting. Sorry. Yeah, no, no what, what that does is, you know, whatever whatever support that John McCain, the Republican nominee, might have had coming out of uh, the convention and the debates, it fell out from under him, you know, when he's sort of seen as the, the third term of George W. Bush, even though they're very different people, uh, but he's running, uh, kind of carrying that Bush mantle, and then you have the collapse in the housing market and the uh, beginning of the Great Recession, uh, you know, then basically any, any chance that he has kind of, kind of uh, goes by the wayside and you have Obama representing this new generation of leadership yeah. come in and, uh, and takes office. And for, you know, people that were not Obama people, you know, now there's, there's some bad blood. <laughs> if you will. So this is another kind of How many Taylor that, Swift songs yes. can we reference? Uh, you know, to one side, he represents their wildest dreams. To the other, there's bad blood. But, uh, I thought he was really strong. He was a really strong candidate. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Very, uh, very charismatic. And he, his rhetoric, going back to that 2004 Democratic Convention, appealed to the ideals I think people were celebrating today uh, at Bush's funeral, you know, that bipartisan ideal but you know the way that he was not accepted in reality and was treated as illegitimate by a lot of people on the Republican side and you saw like the uh, the birth certificate conspiracy theories and stuff like that <laughs> you know that's another area where uh, George H.W. Bush was kind of the last of of uh, or the end of an era in that George H.W. Bush was the last president that both sides regarded as legitimate so when Clinton comes in the uh Republicans immediately start investigating all these little scandals from Arkansas, water, uh, Whitewater, and uh, Travelgate, and Filegate, and all these things, and treat him like a criminal from day one. George W. Bush loses the popular vote, and uh, you know Democrats to this day think Al Gore should have won Florida in the presidency. Uh, and then you have Obama, where a large segment of Republican voters, not a majority by any means, but a significant uh, group don't believe he was born in the United States, um, and that's you know that kind of contested legitimacy has continued to today, and I think that's another reason for how poisonous our politics have become. Mm-hmm. Right, because before the election of George W. Bush, what only three presidents in American history had been elected after losing the popular vote? Is Let's that see. right, Harrison? Uh, Hayes. Hayes? They lost no. after... Oh, well, it was... So... Oh, yeah. Rutherford B. Hayes. Rutherford yeah. B. Hayes. Rutherford B. Hayes in yeah. 1876 beat Samuel Tilden in the... In the electoral college after, compromise. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And then, uh, yeah, 1888 with, with Harrison versus right. Grover Cleveland. And then... Right, 1824. They, lost, they lost the popular vote, but still became president. Yeah, yeah 1824, 1824, John Quincy Adams. Yeah. Right, so three. Three presidents right. in all of American history that had won election after losing the popular vote. And now it's happened several times in our lifetime. Yeah. So I think that really also contributes to that 
loss of perceived legitimacy of these presidents because, um, you know, they're, they're losing the popular vote and they're still becoming president of the United States. Once upon a time, that was almost unheard of. Now it's sort of regular. Um, it's happening more commonly. Maybe we should touch on the popular vote whole. Uh, <laughs> oh, yeah. Uh, should we keep the electoral college? The electoral college issue. Yeah. So, I think the best way I heard it uh, described, I suppose, is the electoral college allows for all those small communities and obviously right. smaller states to actually still get, you know, basically a say, I suppose, as opposed to California and New York and Texas, mm-hmm. like, just, like, totally mm-hmm. overcoming all of them. Mm-hmm. But it is weird that contrasted with the popular vote that like if most of America is saying I want this person, right, right, like then, <laughs> that gets squa- you know stopped by the electoral colleges. I think that's where we kind of have to you know, right. That's where people get frustrated. Yeah, right. And there are other big state, small state balances that we have in place, right? I mean, like equal representation in the Senate. That's got to be helpful. <laughs> I mean, yeah. all of that kind of stuff. But um, yeah, I, I it, it's that's such a difficult question to to try and decide where I mean the influence is going to be concentrated somewhere we're just basically deciding where we want that influence to be concentrated do we want it to be concentrated in major urban centers or do we want it to be concentrated in key swing states or you know um, right yeah basically the the electoral colleges it has evolved you know it used to have it used to fill the role of the putative smoke-filled room Mm -hmm. where they were going to uh you know, representatives of the people where the people directly would select a president and they would, you know, not select people who would be demagogues uh, and it wouldn't be about pure popularity. Uh, as it's evolved, it ensures that the kind of majority that's required to win the presidency or plurality or minority, uh, but basically the, the kind of coalition it takes to win the presidency is going to be something that includes both uh, urban and rural, and mm-hmm. I think there is still some value to that as we become a more fractured society, uh, you know, greater cosmopolitan versus rural divide. Mm-hmm. I think it's important right. for people in the rural parts of America to still feel like they have a say and a, a stake in the process. Yeah, and, that's true. And I think it's easy to overstate the influence of the Electoral College, uh, you know, given that it wasn't all that long ago we had... Uh, Reagan won forty nine states. Richard Nixon won uh, forty nine states. If, if I don't know, it's picking the president, and it's picking a president that the people aren't voting for. So I think you can't really overstate its influence. How can you overstate it when it's overturning the will of the greatest number of the American people? Well, I, I'm. I, I think what I'm trying to say is the electoral college is very very subject to relatively small changes in the distribution of the popular vote, like Bush, uh, Bush versus Gore, uh, Bush won 271 to 267, uh, and that looked really narrow, and the national popular vote was pretty narrow. Um, on the other hand, you would think, based on Reagan won 49 states, um, if that were representative of the popular vote, then you would think Reagan got uh, 98% of the popular vote, obviously... He did not. It was more like fifty-five percent. I'd have to go back and look. But what I'm getting at is, um, you know, if the popular vote is not as close as it has been, then the electoral college isn't isn't close either. So um, you can. I don't think that 
it, it seems strange that it's happened twice in the last 20 <laughs> years, but I don't think that that means it's going to inevitably continue, but uh, we'll see. Yeah. I'm not I'm not a overturn the Electoral College girl uh, yet. I just mostly haven't decided. <laughs> um, but I, I can understand where frustration comes in um, yeah. from people who who feel like the Electoral College is sort of a relic and it is thwarting the will of the majority of the American people. I think the real argument that I see um, that was presented to me by a, a very intelligent uh, attorney friend of mine who is an attorney in a very, very rural um, area of a state with a, a significant rural population, um, she says it, it's not so much that they have that they get to feel like they have a voice, but that they are paid attention to by the larger um, political machine. machine yeah, 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 that that if <laughs> we did away with the Electoral College, the candidates wouldn't even bother to show up to some of these states. They wouldn't bother to advertise in them. Um, even just the election messaging wouldn't get to some of those rural communities. They, they wouldn't even really know um, what was going on. And at least the Electoral College, she would argue, um, makes them sort of dial into those communities, which I think is, is fair. I mean, that's, that's worth protecting, maybe. Mm-hmm. I'm going to keep thinking about it. Yeah. <laughs> I haven't decided yet. Yeah. yeah, if anything, and I've been defending it, but I'm more naturally uh, inclined to get rid of it. I just, I just worry that the negative second-order effects of that would be what your friend is, mm-hmm. is warning against. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I think, to cap it off, I suppose, I think the... The popular vote, obviously, like we're saying, is like frustrating to if you lose to that essentially. Right. Right. But there is something to be said, yeah, like of centers of whether Democratic or Republican control, and then you just follow along with your friends, you know. So right. everybody's just gonna follow that. So maybe it's right. like a little bit of a misperception it, right. of what is actually the popular vote, I suppose. But mm-hmm. um, yeah, okay. So we're at an hour. Do you guys still have time? Mm-hmm. Oh yeah. Okay. Okay. Um, okay. So then going into Obama. Um, or, sorry, Bush to Obama. Uh, Obama, I don't know, I always see him as kind of, not to, like, um, promote him, I suppose, Mm -hmm. but he's kind of recovery from the Great Recession, right? Mm -hmm. And then I think this starts the real political divide, right, Mm -hmm. of the bipartisanship, I feel like, where he can't really get, I don't know if it's a fault of his own or maybe of Congress or whatever, but where the Republicans and Democrats really seem to be at either side. I completely agree. I think that there was a big change within within the Republican Party, within the conservative movement during the Obama years. It's always uh, the party that's not in power that is the most prone <laughs> yeah. the, to go crazy. Yeah, the, yeah, the, yeah. the radicalization. Right. Joe's they're kind of like the inferior, bec- you know, party, and they feel like they're yeah. Well, and they're leaderless. Like when yeah. your when your party has the White House, the president is the de facto party leader, and he sets the tone. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So when George W. Bush was president, you know, during the post-9-11 wars, uh, there were Republican candidates in rural parts of the country that might have felt like it was helpful for them to um, make Islamophobic statements or, you know, to mm-hmm. attack Muslim people. Uh, and Bush very early after 9-11, set a tone that that was not cool, <laughs> that that was not <laughs> tolerated. And so as long as he was the, the party leader, people would not take those steps. But then after he lose office, then 
you see Republican candidates and conservative writers um, making a big controversy out of the uh, the Ground Zero Mosque, which was a mosque that somebody, uh, you know, that a group of Muslims wanted to build in Lower Manhattan, yeah. uh, you know, as if you don't have the right to build a place of worship anywhere in the United States, uh, regardless of religion. Uh, and that's just one example where, and we did see some similar stuff a little bit on the Democratic side when, when Bush was in the White House. Uh, right, during the, we always go back to the Howard Dean scream. And, right, you know, the, the anti-war movement, right. Code Pink. Right, they get radicalized and crazy when they're out of power because they feel like that's the best way to gain notoriety and attention for their side, I guess. And because it's frustrating, presumably, yeah. <laughs> to not be in power. Yeah, and, and I think the difference in the Democrats then versus the Republicans now is the people that aspired to leadership in the Democratic Party at that time, you had on the one hand Hillary Clinton, who represented uh, kind of the experienced, uh, you know, establishment Democratic Party that had been a- around through her husband's eight years and was sort of committed to, well, like like she had been there before, you know, at yeah. business as usual a little bit, and then you had Obama, who had a very aspirational, positive message, but then on the Republican side, we were talking earlier about how attacking your opponent is a lot more effective at than presenting a positive policy agenda. Well, much more so in Republican primaries. Uh, going back to that lesson that people learned from Bush 41 breaking the No New Taxes Pledge, uh, you had this this race to the right. No matter how conservative yeah. you were, there was going to be some talk radio host somewhere saying that you were a Republican that you're name a only. Rhino. Yeah. Uh, in order to sell books, Ann Coulter, Rush, Hannity, <laughs> uh, right. people like that. So you have this phenomenon where people like um, Marco Rubio got elected senator from Florida um, running as the Tea Party conservative alternative in the primary versus the incumbent governor, uh, Charlie Crist, I think was his name, uh, who was the establishment rhino, right? And Rubio gets elected and uh, because he is not willing to go as far to the right as some people want. Now, he's All considered crazy. a righto. Right. You look at 2016, and, mm-hmm. and people are lambasting him for being, you know, oh, so establishment. Oh, he's he's not conservative enough. Uh, right. What? Yeah. <laughs> like, and you see the same thing through the, the uh, leadership of Boehner among the House Republicans and then into uh, Paul Ryan, where they come in as the new party leader in Congress as the conservative alternative to the entrenched establishment, and then they quickly get identified as the new establishment, which part of that is because, yes, they have the reins of leadership, so they are the new establishment, (laughs) but also because uh, people that are opinion leaders figured out they can sell books and newspaper columns and Mm -hmm. so on by painting it that way. So then that just creates this... Uh, self-reinforcing incentive structure that drives the whole party to the extreme. Mm-hmm. You guys want to expound on the rhino thing? Yeah, well, Republican... Oh, sure, sure, yeah, Republican in name only. It's an acronym for okay. Republican in name only, so like a, a fake... A, a Republican who's not with truly with party. conservative. Yeah. Right. Okay, gotcha. yeah, and I remember as a young girl, um, my parents, bless them, I, I really love them, they're great, and thinking people... Um, they had this book on uh, rhinos of the Clinton era, and um, it helped you, like, I, I don't know if I remember it super accurately because I was kind of young, but 
uh, it supposedly pointed out all these rhinos uh, of the time, which also shows how far back people have been using that term to sort of paint yeah. um, Republicans as not being sufficiently conservative. But uh, it's especially utilized today um, almost with no meaning because it's applied to people who who were Tea Party candidates who were incredibly radically conservative. And, um, and yeah, just like Jasmine said here, it's just not... Um, <laughs> you, you take that environment, you can, right? You can't live in that identity, I guess, for yeah, very long. You you take that environment and with partisan redistricting, where you know ninety percent of incumbents get reelected because ninety percent live in districts that are heavily Republican or heavily Democrat. Yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. Your bigger threat to not being reelected is to lose your party primary, yeah. not yes. losing the general election. So mm-hmm. all the incentives are to not compromise. Right. Be as crazy as possible. Mm-hmm. That's true. Keep the status quo, which mm-hmm. I hate. So is there a Democrat equivalent of a rhino? Well, yeah. <laughs> I, I think I think the term is neoliberal shill. Uh, that's what I see on, on Twitter a lot. Basically, uh, I think... You know, Doesn't I, neoliberal have a real meaning? I, I mean... I, I don't think it is. There's see, a, I guess I only see it being used by academics who um, hope to mean it in a, in a really legitimate way, but... Yeah, no, I, uh, I forget who it was on, on Twitter, but it was somebody that had been a, a prominent supporter of the Clintons in the 1990s, uh, and they said, neoliberal is just an epithet for liberal that socialists use to impugn yeah. liberals, uh, because it sounds like neoconservative, which was the epithet that liberals used during the Bush years in the 2000s uh, to impugn supporters of George W. Bush because it sounds like neo-Nazi. Right. Uh, or it connoted this, you know, warmongering, uh, you know, invade Iraq, invade Iran uh, kind of thing. And so now they toss around. Yes, it does have, you know, a meaning, a particular meaning in political science uh, to refer to, you know, people that uh, promoted the Washington consensus in international development that we were going to give foreign aid to developing countries and they had to adopt these pro-market uh, policy and regulatory schemes. So, yeah, definitely has a meaning. But the way I, I see it, uh, you know, I would say that would be the, the equivalent to to Rhino would be okay. neoliberal. Or they say that they're, uh, you know, they, they will attack Democrats for being corporatist. They take too much corporate money or, you know, um, they're not, not sufficiently for... What about globalists? I mean... Yeah, you don't see that on the Democratic side. Not so side. much on the Democratic yeah. side, but it's one that's sort of. I've heard that about. recently. Yeah, yeah. Which, President Trump's been using that one. Right. Mm-hmm. Yeah. People. So th- this is where Trump is a major deviation from the Republican orthodoxy yeah. since the Eisenhower years. <laughs> uh, there's a long history in the United States of support for isolationism, going back to the 19th century, yeah. and then yeah. the 20s and 30s. You had people that felt like we got a raw deal intervening in World War One. Absolutely. Nye out of North Dakota, I mean, launches this nationwide campaign where he's putting on huge events to promote isolationism and yeah. keep us out of war. And Charles Lindbergh. Um, yeah. And then after World War Two, now, uh, you know, we went in and, yeah, Japan attacked us. They had to be defeated and they were allied with Germany. They had to be defeated. Britain pulls away from the mantle of leadership and the question becomes, is the United States going to become a leading global power. And there are still those, uh, more so on the Republican side, 
people that uh, uh, want the U.S. to retrench a little bit, and uh, they they support um, candidates like uh, General MacArthur for higher office, and then you have the uh, the Eisenhower side, and you have the Eisenhower. I think it was Eisenhower versus versus Taft. Am I remembering that right in the '52 primary? Um, I don't. Where uh, anyway, Eisenhower is the candidate that you know. It looks like Truman is going to go down to defeat if he runs for re-election, and most of the Democrats support um, internationalism because of FDR. Uh, and Eisenhower basically says uh, decides he's going to run as a Republican in order to. Um, protect internationalism. And so when Eisenhower wins and then is in office for eight years and his vice president, uh, Nixon, later gets elected for two terms and you have Kennedy in between, um, it kind of creates this um, this consensus during the Cold War era that you know the U.S. being the leading economic power, leading military power, has to stand up to the Soviet Union because we're the only, only country that can lead that yeah. alliance. And we build these international institutions like the International Monetary Fund, right. the uh, the Bretton Woods Economic System, uh, the United Nations, so on and so forth, NATO, uh, through which we we carry out that leadership. And you don't really hear a lot of isolationism again until 1992 when Pat Buchanan challenges yes. George H.W. Bush in the Republican primary. And he loses, of course, but... Uh, and seems a little bit ridiculous, right? I mean, some people take him seriously, but... The... Uh, well, he did write a book arguing that Britain, or that the UK should not have gun war with Germany in 1939, <laughs> uh, which is a, an unpopular thing. <laughs> right. Um, but, you know, uh, nothing really comes of that until uh, Trump wins. And I don't think Trump wins largely because of that, but the fact that he did win the Republican nomination and get elected president and comes from that school of thought... Uh, does mark a big change in the Republican Party. And so you see his supporters, who probably aren't motivated primarily by foreign policy issues, but nonetheless they'll go along with him on those, the the epithet they use for Republicans of the old order and for Democrats is globalist, as in they, you know, they put global issues above American interests. Mm -hmm. And, And I... You know, I fundamentally disagree, but I think it's an epithet for people that would be more fairly described as internationalist. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and then I think going into uh, President Trump getting elected is probably because he was so unorthodox, right? Like, I mean, I feel like he's kind of one of those people that, sure, he's labeled as the Republican Party, mm-hmm. but he's just doing right. his own thing. He's, remade, like, you know he, what I mean? he's yeah. remade in his image. Absolutely, <laughs> yeah, I think for sure. And I think everybody is, at this point, fed up with like, the American people are largely fed up with the political system, and he looks like a guy who just doesn't care. Mm-hmm. Or, like, you know, he just mm-hmm. does his own thing, so he's going to shake it up, I right. suppose. Definitely Draining the when swamp, he polls maybe. voters. <laughs> right. They're, yeah. they're say- that's what they're saying. Like, well, I just like him. I like what he says. You know, and they're, they're really embracing, you know, the, this personal image that he's selling. Um, right, without, I, I think, without necessarily a whole lot of um, contemplation of what that means for the historic Republican Party, for for historical norms in right the American uh, right, and you know the the angst within the Republican Party since Reagan left office was, you know, when are we going to have another Reagan? They were constantly looking for who's going to be the next 
Ronald Reagan and yeah. you know mm-hmm. Romney's really photogenic and well spoken, so maybe it's him. Or, <laughs> right. Or uh, but then you know, Fred Thompson's very folksy. Okay. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So maybe it's Fred Thompson, and they can never find another Reagan. And people said, well, they need to get past Reagan and have like the next thing. Else, and yeah. uh, they have definitely found something different than Reagan. <laughs> um, I mean, Amanda, maybe you can weigh on this. I think the the person in American history who I think is most like Trump in certain ways is. William Jennings Bryan in terms of how he comes in and is opposed by the party establishment. And then, you know, William Jennings Bryan in 1900, uh, 1896, 1900, 1908, takes over the Democratic Party and sort of remakes it in his own image. That's, yeah, I think that's an excellent comparison. And it's not one that you really see, I don't recall ever seeing that drawn uh, in any, like, media outlet, but... A lot of times people say, oh, Andrew Jackson, or they'll draw um, parallels with Nixon, and there are tiny pieces of those comparisons, I think, that maybe work, but um, in a bigger picture type of examination, Trump is definitely not Nixon. He's certainly not Andrew Jackson. Um, He's borrowed maybe aspects of campaigning from Jackson. Maybe he has certain Nixonian kind of tendencies, but yeah, William Jennings Bryan, I could really see that. That's a strong comparison um, because it's very much centered on kind of his reinterpretation of what the party should look like and how they should proceed. Um, and, you know, who the source of moral authority is in the electorate. Yes. It's the the rural people, the, right. uh, the working class, and that determines his, you know, his economic vision. Right. That, yes, that moral authority resting with them. Because if you think about William Jennings Bryan drawing some of those um, illustrations about, uh, you know, not not making them suffer, not not taking their lives from them, and, um, right, not crucifying them, not, not, not crucifying them on a cross of gold. <laughs> William Jennings Bryan says it's very famous cross of gold speech. Uh, and absolutely, that's the same kind of messaging and rhetoric that Trump utilizes, I think, to connect with those voters um, the way that William Jennings Bryan did. He said, look, you're, you're taking this poor, you know, working man and you're crucifying him by making him, you know, hold to this, like, gold standard, you know, money practices. Uh, and absolutely that's what Trump did. Yeah. Wow. Trump, I, Trump is attacking... Uh, I knew I liked you. <laughs> <laughs> international trade and free trade agreements and, and foreign aid and a variety of things as being analogous to the gold standard and the big yeah. banks. Yeah, then, this is brilliance right here that you're getting. I hope your listeners I know, appreciate I'm just it. Like, oh yeah. It just took us 77 minutes to get to it. It's really good. Around. So, well, there's probably two parts, I think. Yeah. But um, uh, I think, I don't know, maybe two years ago or something, like basically when Trump got into office, made it evident to me that the cycle seems to be for presidents it's just going to be Democrat or Republican Democrat or Republican. Right. <laughs> yeah. and I think that's largely part to like people get tired that's especially because yes. most people do two terms it seems mm-hmm. like right. now you know yeah because yeah. Bush was like, the last one term when I was like I could yeah. I, I'm ready for you know a couple of one term presidents yeah, <laughs> yeah. you know I, I felt like John McCain in 2008 should have made a, a one term pledge because there was yeah. concern about his age right. which you know later to be unfounded because he lived until this year, yes. but uh, his mom is still alive. Might have made people more comfortable. Might have made yeah. people more comfortable. Uh, you know, I think 
I think if someone like Joe Biden or John Kerry gets the Democratic nomination, I think they could make an argument that, hey, I will make a single-term pledge. 2021 to 2025, I will uh, return America to normalcy, and then we'll hand over <laughs> the reins of leadership to the next generation. Uh, I'm surprised fewer people don't make that argument. Yeah. Uh, but, yeah, it's... Like, and it frees you from running for re-election your entire first term. Right? And then you're, yeah. yeah, you're free from that pressure, I yeah. suppose, right? Right. Mm-hmm. But it just seems almost robotic at this point of, like, right. people do it two terms, yeah. the American people get tired of whatever, whichever party it was, and, and then they swing. They, they, right, they <laughs> yeah. Eight years of Clinton, eight years of yeah. Bush, eight years of Obama. Yeah. Uh, and throughout the, you know, throughout... Most of the 20th century, uh, you know, the only time a party has won more than three terms in a row was 1928 through 1948. You had FDR, FDR. get elected right. uh, four terms, or sorry, in 1932 through 1948. Uh, right, because Hoover's yes. yeah, 28. 1932, yeah. Uh, FDR gets elected four times, and then Truman gets elected. So five elections in a row go to the Democrats, and it's only because of the Depression that that happens. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And then we had three Republican terms in a row with uh, Reagan, Reagan, Bush. Uh, mm-hmm. And, you know, people people do get tired after eight years. And oh, yeah. they, it, it's sort of axiomatic that there's this, uh, you know, small, like, 3% group of swing voters that, that determine actually, things, yeah. that actually yeah. determine things. And every eight years they seem to want to try the next thing. So it's, <laughs> it'll just be uh, interesting to see if they get... Republican fatigue faster than usual right. this time, or you know, or if Trump is able to build a enduring coalition for for his point of view. Mm-hmm. Yeah, he's very abrasive. So we'll see how how strong the Republican Party, I guess, can hold together. But so, can you let's briefly touch on the recent midterm elections? The Democrats took back the House. Mm-hmm. I know I don't understand this fully, but what. Let's. Can you guys talk about what that empowers the Democrats to do? Like, what rights the having the House gives them versus, I guess, I guess presidency or Senate. Mm-hmm. I guess. Sure. So I think that one of the things that my, people's minds always go to um, when they're thinking about control of the House is certainly um, the authority to initiate spending bills. So the the money comes from the House. Yeah. Um, and that is you know constitutionally mandated. So they have sort of the power of the purse strings uh, by taking control of the House that they can utilize um, in a savvy way to pursue their own policy initiatives, their agenda. Because um, money there, fuels everything, obviously. Right. So. <laughs> well, and there are some really specific um, implications of that with regard to, um, like, the investigation, with regard to the response, right, even to, like, the migrant caravan, any, any, anything that needs money. Um, that needs a spending bill to be initiated in the House that gives the Democrats an opportunity to kind of control that process. So that's kind of the first place that my mind goes. Right. Uh, and, and then oversight is the other big thing. Now yeah. the Democrats have the majority. They're going to have the majority on all the relevant committees, chairmanship of all the relevant committees. So now they can issue subpoenas to the executive branch and they can haul witnesses in from the various executive branch agencies in from the White House to testify on different things. So uh, to the extent that oversight of the Trump administration by the House has been not highly motivated for the last two years, 
uh, I think you're going to have a group of people that are very highly motivated to, um, you know, find out information that could potentially help them in the 2020 election. Mm-hmm. And to the extent that they feel like the Republicans, when they controlled the House, did that to uh, Hillary Clinton before she was in the nominee, I think there are going to be some people that are motivated for revenge as well as for fact-finding. Yeah, and then what leaders do they get out of the House in terms of, uh, is there like an, like, there's like a budget office, I don't know, something equivalent or like a oversight kind of? Uh, well, yeah, I mean, they, they, there's a House Budget Committee, there's House Ways and, House Ways and Means Committee uh, that are both important and, you know, they will have their respective Democratic chairs and then yeah. all of the other committees will have, oh, and the Appropriations Committee. Uh, so there's that, and they'll have the Speaker of the House, who is third in line. Third to be in the president. line, yeah. yeah, so yeah. <laughs> that, right. That's not nothing. <laughs> um, but then, uh, separate from that, though, there's also various uh, nonpartisan agencies associated with the House, like the General Accounting Office, uh, the mm-hmm. um, oh, what is it? The the research. What am I thinking of? The Congressional Research Congress, Service, yeah. CRS. Um, you know that produce. Nonpartisan research for the staffs of elected officials to go build policy based on. So uh, that stuff should not change. Now, the majority party writes the rules, so it is always possible that uh, they could try to force changes in some of those nonpartisan establishments, institutions on the Hill. But I think that'd be very unlikely. You'd see a big backlash against it. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, I only learned about that recently that the House kind of has that oversight in the budget mm-hmm. kind of thing, but. Um, so let's see, what's, what do you think's next here? Who's, who's going to be the next ticket? What do we think about Bernie Sanders? <laughs> not a fan, not a fan. Uh, so. I think he's, I, th- I think he's kind of done, but maybe I'm yeah, like he's kind a of little got, premature with that. He's kind of got the people behind him in a sense, just because he, he seems to mm-hmm. be for the He has people. a following, yeah. I mean, yeah. He does like, have a, a certain following. Yeah, mm-hmm. I mean, he, to me, he just reminds me of Ron Paul on the Republican side where you have this guy who is... Just yelling about stuff. Well, <laughs> is, is, is older. Now, granted, all the candidates that we're talking about, or most yeah. of the candidates we're talking about, are also septuagenarians, but he's on the higher side of that. I think he's yeah. in his late 70s. Uh, and, you know, like Ron Paul, he advocates for a certain kind of economic dogma that has some rabid supporters, but is probably too dogmatic, and in his case, that's socialism for Ron Paul, that was libertarianism. Um, my big thing with it as a Democrat is that Bernie Sanders, or one of my big things, I mean, I'm more opposed to the socialism, but Bernie Sanders is not actually a Democrat. He, to this day, is an independent who caucuses with Democrats yeah. in the Senate. Yeah. At least Ron Paul was a member of the Republican Party for most of his career. Um, so I f- would find it really troubling to you know, I guess that's true, yeah. turn over national party leadership to somebody that's not a party member and is sort of, you know, uh, marches to the beat of his own drum and and just, you know, supports a a socialist answer to everything. Um, mm-hmm. By and large, although Democrats are known for favoring more governmental type solutions. I still fundamentally believe that the market economy and, and capitalism has been the greatest source of 
of growth and improvement in the human condition in the last several hundred years and all of the government programs that you want to help people have to get funded somehow and um, you know tax revenue you don't get a lot of it from a bad economy mm-hmm. so uh, you know I want I want somebody who's not going to be dogmatically leftist on economic issues somebody that can uh, not antagonize business but can uh, you know work well and work creatively uh, to have solutions that you know use rely on government where government has a relevant expertise and rely on on the, the market economy where the market economy can do the most yeah as far as names I just don't know I mean uh, I think on the Republican side we're starting to see certain people try to preposition themselves um, mm, Kasich yeah, John Kasich. Um, well, even people have talked about Mitt Romney, right? Is sort of positioning comeback. himself for a potential comeback. Oh, a primary challenge? Maybe. I mean, I don't know. Do you think they're going to put Trump up again? Well, I think he's going to... He, I think he's probably going to run again. Yeah. He's probably going to prefer an option, right? Or obvious option, I suppose. The, the one question I have about that is... Barring something crazy dropping or... Yeah. Who knows? The, well, two things make me wonder about it, and that is that... Nikki Haley resigned as UN ambassador a few, uh, I guess, a month or two ago, a couple months ago. It was before the midterm election at a time when, by doing it before the election, when we knew it was likely that the Republican Party was going to lose seats, they didn't want it to look like uh, she was cutting her losses on a, on a losing team. And she hasn't announced that she's running, anything. She ha- running for anything. She hasn't been outspokenly critical of Trump, although she's certainly been more strident than the Trump administration in yeah. criticizing Russia and the UN yeah. and stuff like that. Uh, it makes me wonder if they're positioning her to where if Trump decides not to run, that she would inherit the mantle. And the other thing that mm. makes me wonder that yeah. is reportedly Trump has been asking his advisors if they think Mike Pence is loyal, like the vice president. They're concerned about the vice president <laughs> mounting a primary challenge or something like that. Really? Uh, yeah, now, you know, that's from anonymous sources, so who knows. But yeah. it makes me wonder if, you know, maybe maybe Trump has had enough of uh, controversy <laughs> and has to go back to business. Right. And maybe they're positioning uh, Nikki Haley to inherit his political movement. It'd be very interesting. Uh, and then I, I think John Kasich will probably run in some form or fashion, either in a primary challenge or maybe as an independent candidate, as a, as a third option. would be very interesting. Yeah, Nikki would be really interesting, I think. Mm-hmm. I mean, couldn't we all just see Donald Trump saying, okay, I took care of it, you know? <laughs> yeah. like, Made America great again. I took care of it. Let's, we're going to call this done. I, I, that would not surprise me at all. The thing that makes me think he won't, though, is he doesn't have the wall yet. I think he's going to want to <laughs> get at least part of the wall built in order yeah. to declare victory. I saw something, I don't know how true it was, that Cars Against Humanity uh, bought portion or the portion of the, like, yes. the border or something or something. Mm-hmm. And they, so he that needs that, he needs those permissions to build the wall so he can't totally build the wall. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah, they bought a, a strip of land across the, like right on the border. And, wow, yeah. that's so funny. Um, <laughs> yeah, yeah, I think Nikki would be pretty strong actually. Yeah, I think she'd be very formidable. She's. Mm-hmm. She she has a quality that 
Bill Clinton had, that Ronald Reagan had, that she can twist the knife with a smile on her face. She can Mm -hmm. attack her opponents and be negative without appearing negative. Uh, other like candidates every squadron commander haven't either. mastered that. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> like a good one is capable of, yeah, for sure. Um, or just like any southern woman, yeah. right? That, <laughs> that's bless true. her heart. That's, yeah, yeah. They've perfected the art. That's true. Mm. <laughs> That'd be crazy if Mike Pence did it. I don't know. I don't. Mm. What do you think? It'd be. He would have enough power to do, or you know, obviously he was just vice president, but right. Well, it, so the. The implication, I think, of, of the questions were, you know, is he loyal in terms of would he cooperate with people who are trying to oust Trump so that he could be president himself? Yeah, kind of right? turn around a little bit. Right, like would he help mount a coup, which I don't see happening because he's been, at least publicly, he, he's been um, very loyal to the Trump brand. I think he really yes. sees that as his ticket. So, um, you know, I tend to think that he would be inclined to to stay by Trump's side in hopes of becoming president in 2025. Uh, but, you know, we'll see whether he could, you know, carry a majority of the Republican primary electorate, whether people that punch the ballot for for Trump will punch the ballot for him in the same numbers. You know, I think he, he has a lot of sway with the evangelical voters, but I don't think he has necessarily the same sway with the economic populace yeah. that right. propelled Trump. Yep, I agree. Um... I think we're getting towards the end, but there's a few topics I forgot to touch on. Can, can we briefly talk about the power and latitudes of the executive order and what, like, what can you really use it for and how much, mm-hmm. you know, like the bounds right. of it, essentially. Right. I don't know. Do you <laughs> I was going to let you start. Okay. Uh, well, it is... Because he uses it all the time because... Yeah, but so do a lot of presidents that we don't think about. They didn't realize. Um, yeah, we didn't realize. Right. Because I, I think now, I mean, it's probably because I'm older now, but mm-hmm. also with the news coverage, yeah. it's like you get like inundated with every mm-hmm. single thing that uh, whoever it is in power does. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. So I'm sure we have, we see more, there's more visibility than there mm-hmm. were for like probably like Bush or Clinton, you know what I mean? Or even Obama right. in the beginning, I think. But right. right. FDR was writing like four of them a day or something, mm-hmm. right? Oh, I mean, okay. he it, people historically have heavily leaned on the executive order to pursue their own um, policy agenda. And so I don't, yeah, I don't know um, that this is particularly new, but certainly more controversial in the, well, to to a certain extent, in the things that he's utilizing it for, I guess. Right. I mean, so, I mean, the authority to do it comes from Article 2 of the Constitution, mm-hmm. the fact that President's chief executive uh, and therefore is, you know, has that supreme authority over the entire executive branch uh, to fire people, uh, to make executive branch policy. So over the course of the 20th century, as government grew, more and more power, even, even powers that were really properly legislative powers under the Constitution mm-hmm. got yeah. delegated to different executive branch agencies like the EPA, Department of Energy, so on and so forth. Because Congress has been ceding its power to the executive branch for forever. Right. I mean, since the beginning of the country, basically. Um, And, you know, as... So with that, federal regulation of the economy has grown a lot more complex. And usually it's 
those departments setting those regulations, but the president, as the chief executive, he can reach down and and say, hey, by executive order, this agency is going to do this, that agency is going to do that. Uh, and if you are a minority president, which is to say your opponents have a majority in one or both houses of Congress, and you're having a hard time moving legislation, then doing things by executive order can be very appealing. Uh, one, to get anything done. Two, to project the image of, of action mm-hmm. to show that you're you're doing the job the voters gave you to do. Or three, and, because it's the only way you're going to get the thing that you want that nobody wants you to have. Right, because it's a roundabout way of doing mm-hmm. it, right, yeah. Well, like, Japanese internment, it that was by executive order. I mean, um, we... We took people and put them in camps by executive order. Yeah, we so. always kind of breeze through that yeah. section of history. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but so it's, yeah. So what is he? I mean, what's an example of what he got denied on? I can't remember, but or like where he maybe overstood his bounds or or whoever else. Oh, I mean, whatever else, president. The, the first two travel bans where oh, okay, you know, he yeah. came into office and uh, by executive order said we're going to not allow entry from people from these. I think it was seven Muslim majority countries. And then that got revised once and then revised again, and both of the first two versions got uh, basically rejected by the, the court system as being unconstitutional for one reason or another. Uh, and now we're in the third version. Uh, some of his policies with uh, the border. Where right, he's, the family okay. separation stuff. Right. Oh, and yeah. Okay. Trying to uh, deter uh, mm-hmm. people from crossing the border illegally uh, where he's... Uh, Directing certain policies and then also like using those actions as a negotiating tactic where he'll, you know, say, hey, I will stop doing X, Y, Z if you'll approve funding for the wall. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I suppose that is a tactic you can use. Okay. I think that ends the political discussion. So, talking about the next stage of politics, but then talking about the next stage of your guys. <laughs> oh, boy. <laughs> <laughs> so, what's next? The move to... Uh, to West Texas. Yes. Yeah, we're moving to West Texas. Yes. We were both born Texans. Yeah. So I'm hoping that it's going to be like riding a bike. You know, you get you get used to it again. Yeah, and or riding a horse. You're going to stay there, right? Because that's where you're going to be stationed after the FTU. Right, yes. Yeah. So yeah, the uh, going to the uh, Reserve B-1 squadron at Dias Air Force Base, yeah. leaving the B-52 behind after... Seven years, and yes, that is the training base. That's also where the reserve unit is. So, uh, you know, I will be full-time there initially for seasoning, getting experienced in the new aircraft. Uh, And then after that, I could revert to a part-time status and, you know, do some kind of civilian work there or elsewhere and do the military thing uh, as a true weekend warrior, or I could stay longer and be full-time if they have the money available. So we'll uh, we'll see we'll see if uh, you know the money is available by the time I'm I'm done seasoning and uh, see how we're liking it. But you know we're we're expecting to be there for at least two years and and probably longer. Mm-hmm. Cool. Hoping hoping for a little bit of stability. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> yeah. When he moves, spraying the roots, kind of. Yeah. Yep. When he moves, it will have been fewer than three hundred and sixty-five days since we moved here. Yep. So <laughs> he was not even here for a whole year. 361, but who's counting? I, it, he got close, but I'm sorry. It's, it's all or nothing. So, <laughs> yeah, less than a year here, and uh, and it's already time to move. 
That's cool. Well, I admire you uh, chasing your dreams. Mm. Well, so that's thank great. you. Thank you. Um, let's see. And so I think last time we were talking about um, mm-hmm. your affinity for uh, laundry services. Oh, yes. <laughs> and, I was, and I was talking about mm-hmm. my uh, pillow conundrum of, uh, I don't know, I, I seem to always get uh, hair, you know, it mm-hmm. always seems to get dirty pretty quick. And the um, dishwash soap actually worked on that. Oh. So I just put some of that on there yeah. and then just throw it in the washer and it got rid of it. Good. Right? Sucked it up. So <laughs> I just wanted to, I guess, uh, conclude that story there. So, <laughs> in case people were wondering for the whole year. Yeah, I know, right? Mm-hmm. Okay. Um, well, thanks for being on again. It was a great time, I think. Yeah. Yeah. So great to be with you. Yeah. Right. We keep managing to squeeze it in right before we move. So. Yeah, I know, right? <laughs> That's yeah. good. Yeah, thanks for having us. So, yeah, absolutely. Uh, I, I have to ask her, uh, I understand you might be going back to a certain tropical island soon. Are you going to do another episode from the Crack Rag? <laughs> yeah, hopefully, and hopefully it's a better sound quality. As well, you know? <laughs> but uh, yeah, hopefully to continue it. Um, obviously, Luxury's not here, so we're trying to get it to go with the Skype as well as you know other guests and stuff. Mm-hmm. So hoping to keep the uh, thought-provoking... Um, Journey to enlightenment. Yes. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Figuring out if the juice is worth the squeeze. So. That's yeah. right. Okay. Thanks a lot. Yeah. The views and opinions expressed in this podcast are those of the individuals and do not reflect the official policy or position of any agency of the U.S. government.